All right, let me ask you to take your Bibles and go with me to the book of James, chapter 4. James, chapter 4. I almost feel the need to give you a disclaimer today. If you happen to be uh, um, a guest with us today for the first time, I really don't like saying visitor or guest uh, because I like for you to step in and feel like you're part of the family. And... uh, In my house, when family comes, we don't call them guests. They're just family. And uh, so I also recognize the reality is it may be somebody's first time here today or maybe first time in a while. And uh, you step in. The way I preach is through books of the Bible as a rule. Um, I I think that's healthier for us as a church to get context of Scripture, and we get the full counsel of Scripture that way. And so typically that's what I do. We pick a book and we preach through it. And, you know, if you're visiting with us, then people here will tell you that it takes us forever to get through some of these books. Um, And in James, we're now in the fourth chapter and we're halfway through the series. Um, But here's the deal. That's why I kind of feel like I need to give a disclaimer. James, uh, where we are today in the book of James... James is straight up, in-your-face stuff. Uh, so I want you to hear that, especially if uh, you're not a regular here yet. Um, I did not pick this text because I'm mad. Okay? Okay? Okay. Um, but it's, it's, maybe James was mad. I don't know. But uh, James certainly is in-your-face And so let's deal with it. And here, I'm going to also, I need to get you thinking on the same plane with me here. I'm going to talk about uh, the friends that you bring to church, or particularly the friend that you bring. But I'm not talking about that person that shows up with you, okay? Everybody with me? I I normally don't give disclaimers on my sermons, but James has me a little gunshot, just to be honest with you. Uh, because he's straight up in your face, aggressive, this cannot be kind of stuff. All right? So let's do it this way. I want you to think with me about the friends that you bring to church. My, I have two examples I want to give you, and I need to give them very quickly because of time already, but... Um, um, I had a situation one time. I I had just become senior pastor of the church where I had been serving. It was my first church to be a senior pastor. And uh, we undertook an emphasis there that uh, involved uh, really a very targeted, intense kind of a a week or two. And so in order to do that, I kind of reached into my own background and asked one of my friends to come to church with me, actually more than just come to church. This guy, his name is Gary Manning, and uh, he was my first real mentor in my ministry outside of my dad. Matter of fact, he might have even predated my dad as a mentor for me in the ministry. And Dr. Manning, who was one of my professors at Wayland Baptist University, was an incredible guy. He knew what it meant to love people. He certainly had the academic prowess to be able to take all of us young preacher boys to places we didn't even know existed. 
And so uh, on this particular topic, Dr. Manning was really an expert on that. And so I asked him to come in and he did a retreat with our men at South Padre Island for uh, two days and one night. Uh, We came home from that and then that next Sunday he preached for us. Following the service that day, we had a church-wide luncheon to kind of finish off the weekend and the emphasis that we've been going through. And it was at that luncheon that the importance of what I'm trying to tell you now came to light. As we were sitting at the table and we already had our food, um, one of the men of the church, a self-appointed Pharisee, understand that term? Jerk might be another way to say that. (laughs) The self-appointed high priest Pharisee came over to our table to my friend and proceeded to tear him apart, not over what he said, but what he did not say. In other words, this egotistical Okay, maybe I've used enough of those kind of words. You get the picture. This guy came, and it wasn't about what was said in the sermon or over the course. The guy wasn't even involved in the stuff with the men stuff. But he did not hear the things he wanted to hear over a particular passage of Scripture. And so he came in, and he made it his business to be the authority and to tear apart my friend. Have you ever taken a friend to church, and you walked out feeling like some Pharisee had torn them apart? I'll be honest with you, when I finished that whole encounter, in my mind, I decided I will never bring another friend to church. Now, that's wrong thinking, but it is honest with you. I got over that because another key minister and mentor in my life Kicked in, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about some of the process that Dr. Cook took me through. But Ron Cook, who is professor and director of the doctoral program, or was at the time at Taylor, I mean at uh, Truett Seminary, was and still is one of my main mentors in ministry. Uh, he happened to be coming down to the valley, and I asked him to come and preach at our church because that high priest, self-appointed Pharisee was no longer part of our church because God's gracious, that's why. And uh, Dr. Cook came in as my friend. He no longer held sway over me in the doctoral program. Uh, He was my friend. And he stepped into the pulpit and for about 20 minutes or 25 minutes, he took our church to another place. I want to talk about the friends that we bring to church, and particularly the friend. Now, that'll play out more as we go through this, but let me turn the conversation for just a moment. Because what I just got through explaining is how a church and its ethos, the the way it does what it does, has the very real possibility of destroying people. And Dr. Cook's example is where the right spirit in a church transforms that church. So I want to talk about how we do church and who we are as a church. So let me turn it to what's valuable 
to you. If I said to you, identify the things to which you ascribe value in your life, many of us would immediately go to the stuff of life, the tangible things. For instance, if I said to you, uh, I need you to go one week without your cell phone, how would that go for you? Do you find your cell phone to be a valuable piece of your life? I just lost all the teenagers right there. But you know, my, my observations uh, going around in the public arena of Southeast Texas is uh, dependence on cell phones is not a teenage thing. All of us are that way. I said this in the early service, and the guys that I knew that were salesmen were going, yes, I would absolutely give up my phone for a week. But you couldn't function, could you? We ascribe value to those things, or our homes, or our houses, or our vehicles, or whatever it happens to be for you. What is valuable to you? Some of us would quickly jump to the intangibles. Our, our family, for instance, and particularly the love that we have as a family. Over the holidays, I think I mentioned this last week, but over the holidays, our, all of our children were home. Their kids, my grandchildren, were there, and the grand dogs came too. Now, I just got to tell you, some of the grand dogs are a lot more fun than the kids. We absolutely had chaos in our house for about a week, but especially for a couple of days. But you know what about that? That was therapeutic chaos for us. You know why I say that? Because the love we have as a family was celebrated in those times. That's valuable to me. Valuables are the things to which we ascribe value. Maybe it's your bank account. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your company. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your family. Whatever it is, all of us have those things. And here's the deal. James takes us to task on our values. I want to talk now about that friend that you bring to church as the value system that follows you wherever you go. What's the friend you brought to church today? Let's read. James chapter 4. We actually start in verse 1. And I'm going to go ahead and read from verse 1 through verse 6. And then we're going to pick up from verse 7 and following a little bit later. Uh, But we have enough in verses 4 and 5 and 6 to keep us busy for a while. Here's what he says, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. We might say character assassination. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, that's hard enough. James is now being very straight up in your face. Verse 4 is straight up in your face on steroids. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he, that is God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And we're going to work our way through this and then pick it up in verse 7 shortly. But let's do a little bit of business here in what we have in these first few verses. Verse 4, especially, you adulterous people. If you happen to have the New American Standard Version, it captures the language very literally that James uses. And it's important that we get that literal thrust of what he's saying Our version, the one I read from the English Standard Version, says you adulterous people, but literally it is you adulteresses. It's an interesting term. When James is writing and he's taking on now the power people of that church. But let's remember that James is writing this letter. I've said to you before that I believe with most scholars or many scholars that this is probably the first letter of the entire New Testament that's written probably 49 A.D., thereabouts 50, early in the life of the church. And James is writing to these people who are power people, who are problematic in the church, causing division, and they would have almost certainly been men. And yet he calls them adulteresses. Now, there's some fighting words in southeast Texas. You might call me a girl, and we might get after it if you did that. So why would he do that? James now uses a term and he reaches back into their Jewish heritage. And he goes back to the language of those Old Testament prophets who regularly stood in the face of a group of people who were power people who were running the country or maybe even all of the people, the general cultural norms of their time and those prophets stood and pointed their crooked fingers at that crooked generation and said you are adulteresses before God. Interesting terminology James uses as he reaches backwards and he speaks to the bride of Christ, the church and he calls them adulteresses. I take you to the book of Hosea. If you haven't read the book of Hosea ever or in a while, you should go back and do that because God tells the prophet who is Hosea to do something that if I did, you would fire me. He said to Hosea, go marry a prostitute. Hello, God, do you not know what your law says about those people? And God said, go do it. As a living testimony of what my people have done with me, they have married another lover. So Amos, excuse me, James draws back to that picture. This would not have been lost on those people. This is a line in the sand kind of a statement. You adulteresses. See why I said maybe James is a little bit angry with them? Seems like it maybe. Maybe he's just teaching truth to them. So he takes another step. Why would he call them that? Do you know that do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? There are a couple of elements of this we need to make sure that we get. Here's the first big truth I want you to get. Your actions reveal your character. 
Who are you, really? Part of what we would do if we want to really know who you are is we would watch how you behave. But most of us are refined enough in the way we behave that we know that when we're with certain people, we need to act one way, and then we get with other people, and maybe we're a little more loose with them, and we act another way with them. So really, if I wanted to know who you really were, I would watch you when nobody knows that you're being watched, and especially you. I'm not talking about doing that, so you don't have to worry. I'm not going to be peeking in you know, your stuff. But the reality is that all of us, in that deepest private part of who we are, know that we can't live that way and be accepted in our society. And so we make up ways to cover that. And we jokingly say, I'll throat punch you. That's another way of saying, I don't like you. I don't like what you're saying. Those kind of things. So your actions reveal your character, but here's the other part of it. Your character, which is revealed by your actions... Reveals your values. Yesterday, I went to some of our social media reaches, and I invited you to invite someone to church. Bring someone to church unless, and then I put behind that dot, 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 because I wanted you to be thinking about who does he not want us to bring to church. Now, most of us know that the acceptable, to pull all this together, most of us know the acceptable level of how we handle ourselves is that we would say, well, everybody's welcome to come to church. Do you really believe that? You know, I I was in church uh, in Hobbs, New Mexico. Man, the three longest years of my life, Hobbs, New Mexico. I came home from a function with a bunch of junior high kids one day. We'd been at Carlsbad Caverns all day, about an hour and a half drive over. uh, And we got home late in the day and we came back to the church, and there was this guy standing at the door. Now, this guy was one of those guys that when you look at him, you think to yourself, I need a gun. (laughs) And I'm the youth minister at that point, and I got all these junior high kids, so not only do I need a gun for me, I need to protect all of these kids and these lady sponsors that I have. I'm the guy. And so I'm thinking to myself, which kid can I send over there to talk to him? (laughs) So I get over there and I start talking to him and he starts telling me about this group of people that he's been running around with, a group, according to him, who worshipped Satan. And he wanted out of the group, but they were going to kill him. So what do you do with that? So I said, won't you come inside to my office and let's talk. And so I turned the kids over and getting them home to the lady sponsors that we had. And I took this guy into my office. And as we sat in my office, I thought to myself, this is the dumbest move I've ever made. He, he could kill me in here and nobody would know it. And I started talking to him, started hearing his story. And I started, I really kind of believed that he was telling me the truth. I used to run around with a guy. One of my closest friends during my time away from the Lord was an avowed Satanist. So I knew enough of the stories uh, to hear what the guy was saying. I think he was on the level. And so I said to him, I said, you know, uh, I want to talk to you some more. Um, 
when do you want to do that? You want to do it now? Because he kept looking around. I said, you want to do that now? You want to? I said, I'd meet you somewhere. He said, let's meet somewhere else. This place gives me the creeps. Talking about church. You think that kid would be welcome in our church? How about if I brought him in and just inserted him into our youth group? You parents, would you be okay with that? See, when we get really honest, there are some people that we're not too sure they really ought to come to church, right? Now, we're wrong about that, just so you know. If you don't know me enough, you need to hear me say, we're wrong in saying that there's anybody who should not be able to come to church. Everybody is welcome here. But there are some values that are not. And now we get to what James is talking about, and I'm just about out of time. Let me hit a couple of things pretty quickly. First part of verse 4, you adulterous people. Second part of verse 4, do you not know that friendship with the world... Now, see, friendship for us is a kind of a casual thing. You can look at your Facebook and see how many friends you have, and you could feel pretty good about yourself, but the reality is most of them just want to know what you're doing. They're not your friend. They just want to creep on your Facebook page. Friendship for us is pretty casual. The friendship in the first century ancient Near East was much different. It was almost a contractual kind of arrangement. It's, I am with you. We are so attached together. Our values are the same. Our life goals are the same. We will do life together. So James is talking to these Christian people and saying that you have brought the values of your friend, the church, uh, excuse me, the world, into the church. And he calls them on it. Friendship with the world, and what does he say next, is hostility with God. These are diametrically opposed. You cannot adopt the value system of the world and say that you love God at the same time. Well, that hits us at the point of relevance in our community and how do we reach and all of those kind of things. And then in verse For the last part of it, he jumps it up for us even more. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So what is he saying to us? Is it even possible for us to live in this world and at the same time be effective outside of it? Let me me push it even more. Sometimes we get in the church and we pull the values of the world in and try to run it that way. And we start having power struggles because of it. Now, that was last week's sermon, and it's what James is talking about in this whole section. Let me let you in on how pre- you know, I don't do a whole lot of stuff with other preachers. Like the, you know, There's a preacher alliance in this area, just like there was where I used to be. I don't do a whole lot of that because I don't like preachers as a rule. I don't seem to fit in very well. Um, You know that. You're listening to me preach. You know I don't fit in very well with those. Um, But here's the deal. Sometimes preachers uh, are victim of the stuff, or not victim, but they're guilty of the stuff I'm talking about here. They know what to say in their churches, but you get around a bunch of other preachers and they say what they think. They start griping about their churches and comparing churches. It becomes this big, So one of the things that I've heard from many, many preachers through the years is this. We have problems in our church, but those problems are not such that a few good strategic funerals wouldn't fix it. (laughs) 
Now, I'm not saying that I ever said that. Does that sound like a value of the kingdom of God or of the world? It sounds to me like maybe preachers who say that are victim at the moment of a mentality that is just exactly what they're fighting against. Who's going to be in charge? So James takes another step in verse 5. Or do you suppose it is no purpose, or that is to no purpose, that the scripture says, He, that is God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And scholars, this is a big scholarly discussion about exactly what he means and how he says it and where the passage of scripture is he's talking about. Let me boil it down to this one thing. Remember that he has said adulteresses up front. And so I think what James is really driving at is that God is not ever going to be satisfied with me as his child pulling the world's value system into my life. My value system needs to be based on the kingdom of God. So does yours. And the church as we know it is really a gathering of God's people. And so what he's saying and what he's pushing for us is tied to this. Let me just put it as a form of a question for you. What friend did you bring to church with you today? Did you bring a friendship with the world or a friendship with God? What value system runs your life? Some of the possibilities I think that we need to be aware of and one of the things that we adopt and we think it's okay and we pull it into the church is is this whole idea of power and power people. That's what James is talking about here. Or we could pull in that worldly friendship with materialism where I just want to get more stuff. You're playing the... If you win the Powerball lottery, (laughs) remember your church. I don't want to know... Right. I don't want to know if you're playing, okay? Don't tell me. And it's not my job here to make you feel guilty whether you do or don't, all right? Just remember your church if you win, right? But let me, let me in, invite you to step out of the own personal benefit you might get if you win it. The odds are like, you know, seven trillion to one that you might, but that's your money, whatever. I'm not trying to get in your pocketbook. But I want you to watch over the next few days because my understanding is that nobody won it last night. Throw the tickets away, Teresa. <laughs> we didn't play. But the next drawing is Wednesday. Watch what happens between now and Wednesday in our society. One point something billion dollars is going to be given away to somebody. The materialism of our society is such that we just buy into it and then we pull it into how we do church. Be careful with that. The consumerism that drives American and Western society is such that we pull it into the church. And if I don't get my way or if I don't like the color of something or if I don't like the way the preacher said this or he didn't say this, then I'm going to take my little self and I'm going to go somewhere else. Those are values of the world that we pull in that pollute the kingdom of God among us. And James says it should not be that way. So here's what we should point to. I'll try to end on an up note here. 
What we should point to is what we found in Jesus, who lived this life full of the Spirit. No better picture of what God fully working through an individual could be than Jesus himself. And he promises that to us. I have come that you may have life that will blow your mind. That's Jesus' words. Jesus embodies the kingdom of God and its value system. And so he moved out of the safety of that manger. And he got out into the dirty world where it was dangerous and messy. And he began to pour himself and he got out into, he picked these guys who would follow him. But he did that with a revolution in mind. Not to overthrow a government, but to overthrow the sinfulness of mankind. He pulled those guys close to him. He just poured himself into them. That's the ethic of the kingdom of God. That's the value system. That's what a people ought to be who call themselves church. So I enter Dallas Willard. I would encourage you, if you ever had the opportunity to read anything that Dallas Willard wrote, you ought to read it. Dallas Willard on this point talks about something. You may, may or may not understand the term vim and vigor. It's kind of an old-fashioned thing. But he uses the vim part of that to help us three words. If you want to get this right, and you want to leave your friend, the world, and its value system behind, here's some things that will help you. The V is for vision. Can you envision what life would be like if you'd walked with Jesus every day? If you were walking beside Jesus every day, that's the picture. The vision that your life could be that is the first step. Second step is intent. You can see it all day long, but if you never do what has to be done to get there, you will never change. You want to know what got me through those difficult years of doctoral study? I don't bring that up much. I already said that. I just don't. People don't care, and I, and I understand that. I don't care either, really, at this point. I wasn't after a degree. I was after an education because God told me to go do it. But you know what? That was the hardest three and a half years of my life. And short of a miracle from God, I don't think that our marriage would have survived that three and a half years. And that was in 2005 till early 2009. That's not that long ago. The hardest stretch of my life. I had to get up every day at 3 o'clock and read 100, 150 pages before I ever had breakfast or went to work for years. It's tough. But what got me through it was the grace of God, an understanding wife, forgiving wife, and the intentionality of saying, I see what God told me to do, I'm going to do it, or I'm going to die trying. Willard says the last part of that is the M, that is the means. Here's the good news for you. You can't do this. You cannot create in you the value system of God. Only God can do that. And so we get to verse 6, but he gives more grace. And therefore it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So what do you do with all of this? Musicians, come on up. What do you do with all of this? As you look at your life, do you find inside of that this ongoing struggle of, I don't know how to get through this. I don't know what to do with this. 
I want to do what's right, but I keep running into this self-problem that I have, and I keep running into these value systems that are at odds with God, and I can't do that. You go in your own time, look at verses 7 through 10, and you will find that one quick rapid fire, James just says, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. But the bottom line is, verse 6, he gives grace to you. Don't you bow your heads with me, if you will. We go to time of invitation. What do you do with this? If that's your struggle today, and you know that it's a struggle that needs to be won, I would encourage you not to walk out of this building until you get it right with God. It starts with repentance. It starts with an acknowledgement of, okay, I'm not getting it right. Uh, I've got to do something about that. And so you run to Christ. The good news is you don't have to run even a step. All you have to do is make the decision. And he steps in and he says, I'm going to help you with that. So if you're here today and you don't know Christ at all as your Savior, that's the first step. If you don't know what that means, you don't know how to get there, that's what we'll do in this time. We'll have some of our staff at the back. If you want to counsel, you can just kind of slip back there and uh, they'll be ready to talk to you, pray with you. If you don't want to do that today, but it works on you, you can get a hold of me by email. Talk to me. I'll be happy to sit down with you. Love to introduce you to Jesus Christ. Many of us know Christ as our Savior, but we struggle with this stuff of being friends with the world. And we bring that friend to church with us every time we step in the doors. And it's not good. It's not good for the church. It's not good for us. And we begin to realize that. What do you do with that? Repent. You, you don't have to come forward to do that. You can. I'll be down here. I'll be happy to talk with you. Just get it right. James would say, submit to the Lord. Invitation time. Whatever it is, you want to join the church, happy to do that with you. Questions about us, happy to talk to you about that. Now's the time. Invitation. The invitation is yours. What do you do with it? Let's stand and sing.